Welcome to the Performance Nutrition Podcast, giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting-edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bubbs. My guest today is Dr. Graham Close, PhD, a professor of human physiology at Liverpool John Morris University, where he combines his academic research with nutrition and physiology consultancy to some of the world's leading sports organizations. His research is focused on vitamin D, muscle damage and repair, aging muscle, and more recently, research into CBD and skeletal muscle. Graham has published over 160 original papers and review articles and regularly delivers keynote conference presentations across the world. From an applied perspective, Graham is currently working with England Rugby, the DP World Tour Golf, and European Ryder Cup team, and consults to several Premier League football clubs and players. Graham is currently the Deputy Chair of the Sport and Exercise Nutrition Register and is a Fellow of both the European College of Sports Science and the British Association of Sport and Exercise Sciences. In this episode, Graham and I discuss how he got first interested in sports nutrition as a rugby player and what pushed him to pursue his current career. We'll talk about fueling for the damage induced, the role of physical contact in energy expenditure in rugby players and other athletes in contact sports. We'll talk about head trauma and concussion in pro sport and the potential role of various nutrients, including CBD in the potential prevention or recovery. We'll touch on individual sports as well, like golf and tennis, and his recent work in professional tennis player in better understanding the total energy expenditure at the highest level. We'll wrap things out with some great practical advice from Graham and wisdom from all the years he's been researching and working on the ground. You're in for a real treat here with Graham today. Before we get started, a quick shout out to Jameson, who are sponsoring today's show. Inflammation can keep us from performing our best on the field, at the office, and even with our own family. Keeping our body and mind in tip-top shape is important for overall health and wellness. You'll hear evidence-based strategy in today's episode from Dr. Graham Close about the importance of rehydrating, refueling, and repairing when it comes to collisions and concussion. Many factors contribute to increasing inflammation in the body. That's why it's important to supplement with evidence-based anti-inflammatories like curcumin. Jameson offers multiple solutions to support yourself and keep inflammation at bay. A Jameson's 360 quality commitment ensures that natural, pure, and authentic ingredients are only used. I'm a big fan of Jameson's high absorption turmeric with black pepper. It helps to relieve joint pain by reducing inflammation. What I love most about this formula is the addition of the black pepper, which enhances the absorption of curcumin. Jameson's Omega-3 Plus turmeric is also a great two-in-one, helping to support heart health, reduce cholesterol, and even inflammation. For listeners of the Performance Nutrition Podcast, you can go to jamesonvitamins.com. That's jamesonvitamins.com. Use the promo code BUBS at checkout to claim 10% off your order until the end of the year. That's jamesonvitamins.com. Use the promo code BUBS and claim 10% off your next order. All right, let's get rolling my conversation with Dr. Graham Close. Graham, really appreciate you covering out some time today for us. No problem at all. Great to be speaking to you. Listen, I'm sure most people on this listening to this podcast or watching are be very familiar with you, but for newcomers or those who aren't, can you give us a whirlwind tour of your background and then we can kick things off here today? Yeah, I'll, I'll keep it brief. But I uh, was originally a professional rugby league player back in the mid-90s uh, for a variety of reasons. That career didn't go in the direction I would have liked it to go in. So 
embarked on a second career, and that second career has been as a university academic. So I'm now at Liverpool John Moores University, where I'm a professor of human physiology, uh, and I wrote the master's degree in sport nutrition, which has gone on to be a great success. And then perhaps a more interesting side of my life is, as well as being a, an academic researcher, I work as a sport nutrition consultant and currently work with England Rugby, um, the European Tour Golf, or the DP World Tour Golf, as we're now called, and Ryder Cup teams. Uh, I consult in Premier League soccer clubs uh, and I work in boxing with the likes of Dillian White. So uh, a variety of elite sports where I you know, try and help with the nutrition and general sports science and physiology. Tremendous. And I'd love to kind of go back to that starting point around sport nutrition. You know, you're finishing off your career. What's the thing that then says, hey, I want to pursue this nutrition thing? Or is it more of the, the performance side that leads into nutrition? Can you talk, walk us through that uh, that period of your life? Yeah, it, people think it's really well planned. Um, and a little bit was right place, right time and falling into things. I always wanted to be a rugby player. Um, I had a parents or had parents who were nagging me to make sure I continued with education, which at the time I didn't appreciate how good advice that was. Mm. Um, so they convinced me to do my A levels and go on to do a degree. And the only degree that had any appeal to me was this one I'd never heard of a sports science. You know, back in '95, sports science wasn't um wasn't really well known, mm-hmm. uh, but I saw it advertised and I thought, well, that's a great way to help my rugby career to understand a bit more of the science of sport. So I, so I did my degree and I'll be honest, year one and two, I was finding it quite hard because I was a full-time rugby player. So I was training at 5.30 a.m. in the morning in the gym through to university, doing a day at university and back for training in the evening and sometimes shooting off during the day for training midday yeah. and I actually developed a reputation with a, who went on to be a head of school of somebody who fell asleep a lot in lectures um, but he had no idea that I was good reason. A, a pro player so I was getting my head down and then I got some lectures by Professor Don McLaren who some people may have heard of and mm. Don was a professor of sport nutrition he taught the metabolism side of things and I guess Don lit a flame in me back in about 97 that still hasn't been put out. Uh, and that that flame was about how nutrition affects everything, your metabolism, your physique, uh, your physiology. And actually by making changes to, the, to your nutrition, how you can have profound effects on performance. So I went on to do a PhD with Don. Um, Don's retired now. He's uh, still got emeritus status at the university and I'm still good friends with Don. And I'll still use Don to uh, as a mentor and to pick his brains on a few things. So yeah, I can put a lot of it down to Professor Don McLaren. Amazing. I mean, it is something, isn't it, to see that progression? I mean, doing my undergrad in the late '90s, interested in nutrition, to see the arc of where it is now compared to, like you said, of trying to sort of find individuals and things that you, you know. When you see that progression, what, what do you think? I think it's great. You know, I look back at. When I was a pro player in the mid-90s, we had no idea. You know, I think about some of the things that I could have been doing a lot better. And I use an example a bit in my teaching that we had a coach in my era who would just go full-time professional, but he wanted to make sure that we didn't go soft. 
to one to us in the gym at like 5 a.m., mm. uh, even though we had all day, which kind of worked for me because I was able to go to university yeah. and come back and etc. But after about a year of training, not only had I not gained any muscle mass, I'd lost weight. Uh, and when I look back on it, no, it's quite obvious why, because I was obviously not eating before the gym. Straight after the gym, I was getting the carb. There was no protein shakes in that, in that era. So driving through to the university, attending my morning lectures, maybe getting some food at lunch, bombing back to the university. And I just wasn't fueling that training needs anywhere near enough. And I don't think it's any wonder that by the age of 21, and I had six or seven knee operations and my body completely falling apart, I put a lot of that down to really poor nutrition. Mm. But they kind of knew what they were doing in that era when it came to training, but had no idea when it came to nutrition. So I'm delighted to see the change in our industry now. And even the academy players and the youth players coming through the system, that's probably what makes me the happiest, that they're getting the right support. So from the age of 11, 12, we're making sure that people who need nutrition education are getting it in a relevant way to them. Yeah, it is. It's tremendous to see that that change and that difference. And, you know, if we pivot there and start talking about some of your work in sport, and obviously we hear a lot about fueling for the work required and, and working in contact sports like rugby, fueling for the damage induced. Can you talk a little bit about, I mean, obviously through your career, but through your research, how collisions impact energy demands? Because when we think of the translation to American football, to ice hockey, to all these sports where, you know, it is is obviously playing a key, key role and it's oftentimes can still get missed. Yeah, so the, 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 the second paper you talk about, what we call fuel for the damage induced, was kind of pinching my colleague James Morton's fuel for the work required. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so James published that data, which I think has been amazing. I was proud to be involved with that with James. Well, for many years, we've grown in our department to think about carbohydrate in a very much a periodization strategy. And you've got a group of people who are saying that carbohydrates are all evil and that's why we're overweight. And then another group of people saying athletes must live on carbohydrates. And what we've realized over years is actually we need to fuel for work required. So there will be certain days where I go quite low on carbohydrate and then other days where we really ramp it up, particularly the day before a game. So mm. we were carbohydrate loading, but maybe on our low training days, we're a little bit low. So, so that was, I think, a little bit game-changing and a really change the way that a lot of people think about carbohydrate in sports. But a follow-up to that, and it was work from James Hudson, who's my PhD student, who's, again, a former rugby player, now the nutritionist for Gloucester Rugby in the UK. We got speaking about that within this fuel for the work required paradigm, were we giving enough attention to what happened after the event? So we were getting really clued in on what we do building up and during an event. But what about after? And we noted that from working rugby, the day after a game is often a really poor eating day. And that's partly because you feel like you've been run over by a bus. Mm. Uh, and you maybe want that little bit of extra time in bed. Some so comfort foods. And... Correct, yeah. So your comfort foods or even skipping a breakfast because you want to stay in bed or mm. uh, or whatever. Uh, and was realising that, does the body actually need more on that time? It makes perfect sense. So James managed to get the Gloucester rugby team to come in 
every day of the week to get the metabolic rates measured. And what he showed quite clearly was in the days after a game, resting metabolic rate was increasing. And in some situations, by greater than 500 calories. Wow. And that's huge if you think about RMR is normally pretty tight. Mm-hmm. But the day after a rugby game, the body's crying out for at least another 500. So we followed that up then with some novel metabolomics techniques. So for those who aren't familiar with metabolomics, it's the latest probably in the omics where we've gone through genomics, studying mm-hmm. the entire genome, proteomics, and now we're into the entire metabolome. And what we were seeing in this situation is despite feeding more protein, we were seeing increased protein oxidation. But actually, it seemed that that protein oxidation was to provide substrates for gluconeogenesis. Interesting. So the body's wanting more carbohydrate in this situation is our interpretation. And he's potentially getting that from protein. So we thought, well, actually, the body wants more carbohydrate. And we did see an increase in RER. And this was a day when traditionally we would go quite low on carbohydrate because in the fuel for the work required paradigm, there's not a lot of work required. <laughs> and so sure. that's why we, we made it the suggestion about, okay, as well as fuel for work required, let's also fuel for the damage induced. And that immediately changed how my mindset and how I tried to feed the rugby players. And I think it would be important for things like NFL and other collision-based sports where the day after a game, we know there's an increased caloric requirement, but also the metabolomic work we do is suggesting, as well as keeping protein high, we probably have made a mistake in the past by ramping protein even higher. Mm-hmm. Or actually, as we know, once we've hit that protein threshold, what we probably should have been doing is giving more carbohydrate to help with recovery. And that's what I now do. It's fascinating stuff especially when we think of a season, you know, I'm thinking of an NHL season, 82 games or an NFL season, obviously in rugby, Mm. but the coach, the practitioner listening in on that day after the game, just as you said, you feel like you've been hit by a bus. What are some of the strategies then to help get the guys and gals even who are, you know, the appetites may be down, you know, how do we then get extra carbohydrate? Does it matter if it's coming more in simple form? Like what, what are your, some of your go-to's? Yeah, I really don't think it does matter if it comes in simple form. And one of the things that we've tried to do is take the players on a recovery journey. So what we'll do is obviously have the food in the different stations, but make sure we'll make a little bit more emphasis with the visit. But obviously because we're protein stations, so we get their omelets. But then there may be a, um, a specific recovery station next, which will be we might have three different shots but all carbohydrate-based, but with one with berries, mm. you know, um, we, we might try and have one with a bit more greens-based. So almost make it a little traffic light system, a, a red, amber, green, but it's just a neat way of getting three little shots into them with different the nutrition that we think will be good. We might put things uh, on that are a bit more fun on that day. We will always have a big recovery smoothie that we use. Uh, and we try and make that day a bit of fun as well. And we might even finish with like, a relaxation station where in the summer it might be an ice latte and even a little bit of carrot cake or something like that. Yeah, so yeah. just by trying to make that recovery process a bit more fun, we might, if the weather's nice, take it outside and have some fun activities outside as well. Um, we might have a saunas and the ice baths outside. 
uh, with the, the food all next to it on this recovery station. Mm-hmm. And we find then that by making a bit of fun and making a thing of it, the players spend more time in that world and then yeah. they'll be snacking and grazing. And, and then we can really make a big effort to actually get them out of bed and get them into the recovery process. And we found that's had a great effect. Tremendous. I definitely want to come back to that sort of yeah, creating the atmosphere and the fun piece because it does play such a big role in, in food. What would your suggestions be for certain sports where the athletes have an off day the following day? And so they're not coming into the facility and they're at home. And so for the practitioner then sort of providing suggestions, appreciate it might be a little bit similar to what you suggested there, but are there ways that you might think about it of saying, okay, how are we going to help this athlete who's, you know, tired and wants to sleep in to get that extra energy? Yeah, I, I think uh, education, and I'm going to say that being a, a university <laughs> academic, everything's about education, but I think an awareness that, look, you know, as much as you probably want to stay in bed and rest, the best thing we can do is get you up and get you moving and get the nutrition into you straight away. And then we can start to look at, even if you're from home, whether it's relaxation, ice baths in your own house or whatever, but just an education. And then just pitching it in that same way that I said about Luke, what we're trying to achieve and whether we go with the three hours of repair, rehydrate, replace, mm-hmm. or whatever system you want to come up with. But just an education that, Luke, we want to repair the muscles, so we want a good protein source to knock up some omelets or something like that. We obviously want to rehydrate you, so making sure we get some good liquids. And we want to replace these uh, carbohydrates that have been lost. And, you know, we might give them recipes of different smoothies. I've mentioned that a few times, but I think when appetite's low. Nice way to get. Go into, a, you know, something like your Nutribullet or your Ninja or whatever you use, throwing some Greek yogurt, some milk, some berries, some honey, some nut butters or whatever you want to throw in, smash up a recovery smoothie. It's just an easy way to tick all them boxes and then get on with it the rest of your day. Yeah, pretty handy way to get those carbohydrates up as well without feeling like you need right. to chew a lot or eat a lot. Um, yeah, because you said appetite can be low and, you know, uh, you, you find particularly after games and the morning after appetite can be low, but most people can handle the drink. Yeah. But might not be able to handle the huge feed. So we make a lot of use of them type of things. And if we pivot a little bit and talk, obviously in contact sports, Head trauma is a big concern and a growing concern in all contact sports mm-hmm. like rugby, American football, ice hockey. If we, you know, you've done some work at some of these strategies that are a little bit still obviously on the fringes, like the CBDs for potential concussion support. Yeah. Um, can you talk us through, you know, what are some of the aspects of concussion that this might be uh, helping and, and what the what the evidence tells us so far? Yeah, the concussion is a huge one, isn't it? And, and and I think it's something that if we're involved in contact sports, we have to be showing a huge interest in, both from a research, but also is there anything that can help? Uh, one thing I don't think we've probably mentioned enough from nutrition and concussion is that, you know, we do see concussions mainly in the latter quarters of games, which suggests that there's maybe a fatigue element. Um, so... And I think about my own playing time, but when you're getting shattered, you're just throwing your body anywhere, aren't you? And your pro technique goes out of the window. Um, So I think one thing we can do is get our nutrition right to try and delay fatigue. And 
I, I still think our in-game fueling in most team sports isn't good enough. Um, mm. Partly because of logistics, and I get a massive hang-up when I hear rugby commentators having a go at people drinking, bringing hydration and bringing nutrition onto the field and saying, we didn't need it in my day. Well, look, the game's faster. There's a lot of things going on. And actually, we need to do anything we can to help with concussion. So yeah. I almost feel like saying, wind your neck in. It's a hot day. The lads need a drink and a bit of nutrition. And if that stops one person getting a concussion, surely that's a good thing. So I think in yeah. a word, that being fully fueled can be a good thing. Uh, during games, then you're right. We need to start looking at what is out there. And there is some research in rodent models saying that um, CBD can actually potentially help prophylactically when it comes to concussion. And and I'm all for uh, prevention rather than cure. So Mm -hmm. getting the nutrition right so we're less fatigued is one thing, and that's a prevention rather than a cure. Um, And... If CBD can help to prevent it, then I think we need to look at it. The only problem I need to really tag this on to any time I mention CBD in sport is that at the moment, because of the current WADA regulations, I don't think we can recommend CBD to athletes. Uh, and even though CBD isn't prohibited by WADA, and they specifically name that that is the only cannabinoid that isn't prohibited, it's nigh on impossible to give it that one manner that is on its own (laughs) without any of the other cannabinoids in there. So uh, we can't use it yet, but as a researcher, I'm really keen. And then we have got one or two things that may help should you get concussion, such as some of the uh, omega-3s, omega-6, or um, fish oils that may have an effect, and creatine is another one that may have an effect with the blood-brain barrier. Mm -hmm. But... I'm all for can we prevent rather than cure. So they're the two that I'm really interested in at the moment. Um, and I just love WADA to clarify their stance on CBD a little bit better to allow us to, to look at it in a real-world context. Yeah, otherwise they sort of have to sit on the fence and, and not much can get done. And if we go back to the hydration part, Graham, we get athletes in different contact sports who for, you know, prefer water or prefer certain drinks. And it's challenging to get enough fuel yeah. in between because of the mouth feel or the gut feel yeah. or things like that. Do you have strategies or things that you go to in that sense, when you have a player who just wants to drink only water and you know that they do need to have a little bit extra to have some support? Well, I think this is where the sports gels come into their own. So, you know, it was an early observation when I was working in rugby and, you know, I started off in rugby and then, when I retired, I kind of found it hard to watch for a few years. We're almost going into a bit of a mental health uh, mm-hmm. area, but I found that transition away from rugby difficult. So, I, I, you know, it was a good few years where I didn't watch it very much. And then I came back to it uh, as a consultant and really ignited my love for the game again. So it was an early observation in, in the dressing rooms that we were giving the bottles of sports drinks out and some players would have a complete bottle and some would have literally a mouthful. Mm. Um, And I get that because that's all based on thirst. Some people would be thirsty and would want it. Some people would have taken enough water in in the first half that didn't want it. So I came up with the idea that maybe what we should be doing is just putting either water or electrolyte solutions into the bottle. 
and actually getting our carbohydrate dose in gels because it's an easier way to monitor it. You know, most people wouldn't have half a gel. They would have a full gel. So we know we've got 30 grams down them and I'm trying to achieve about 60 grams an hour. So if I can get a gel into my players after the warm-up and then one at half time, I've achieved that 60 grams in the first hour, then I can try and get another one into them halfway through the second half. I'm somewhere near now that 60 grams an hour mark that I'm aiming at. Yeah. So that is my preferred strategy at the moment to use water and to use um, uh, electrolytes in the water bottles, but then to use gels to get my carbohydrate. But that does require an ability for the conditioning staff to get on the field and give these out. And, you know, that's why I do really get annoyed when I hear the commentators getting annoyed that people are coming on bringing water bottles and gels you know, there's a big wider context here beyond um, getting messages on, which I'm sure that that's what we think this is all about. Yeah, no, it, it is definitely frustrating to, to kind of hear those things. You hear it in some of the North American sports as well. Um, but that's a great suggestion, that, you know, to be able to have that sort of fueling component with what's in the gels or other, you know, chews or even, yeah. you know, NBA, CPB and J's have just a way to be able to get that in because, we definitely get different athletes that just want to have water. And then so that becomes because of the mouthfeel or the gut feel. And now you're trying to figure out, okay, how are we going to support that? Hey friends, I hope you're enjoying this episode. A quick reminder, if you want to stay up to date on when each episode of the performance nutrition podcast drops and receive evidence-based insights every month into your inbox, join the athlete performance nutrition community by signing up at performance nutrition podcast.com in the black box. That's Athlete Performance Nutrition monthly newsletter. Sign up at the performancenutritionpodcast.com in the black box. All right, let's get back to the conversation. I'm interested to touch on that continuum between, you know, concussion and, and, and mental health and, and a lot of contact sports because we see, again, in the NHL or the NFL, college football, you know, a lot of the collisions as, as you get on and years not even too far down the road we have challenges in mental health and there's obviously greater awareness which is great we're picking up on things more but you know from your lens and working in rugby you know how do you see that in terms of the support for mental health or, or the actual you know real needs of the players because obviously they're not just dealing with the pressure of the sport but now with this whole living life and uh, online and social media there's that whole side of things for our young athletes right yeah do you know what? i'm glad i'm not a young athlete <laughs> these days you know i'm being honest you know i think social media has done a lot of great stuff but i also think it's done a hell of a lot of bad and it must be so hard for an athlete to escape these days um i think if i was an athlete these days i probably wouldn't be on social media uh, i'm sure the sponsors aren't happy about that but I, I don't think i would um from from that side of things I, but what i do think and what i've seen is a huge improvement over the last few years so even on things like the concussion protocols that we see in rugby now, that, you know, we're much better at getting people off the field if they suspect a head injury and getting them assessed. You know, I think about my playing days, and I, I remember being knocked out. Well, I don't remember. I remember being told about being knocked out <laughs> twice in one game. So I got yeah. knocked out, came to the sideline, told the coach I thought I was good to go back on, went back on, and within 10 minutes I'd been knocked out a second time. 
Um, and, and thankfully, things like that don't happen anymore. Mm. Um, if someone's clearly been knocked out, well, they're off and that's it. And if someone's had a head injury and a head knock and even they've not been knocked out, but somebody on the medical team or the referee even thinks that was a heavy contact, they're off for an assessment. And if they fail the assessment, regardless of what the player wants, because the player always wants to be on the field, don't they? Yeah. They're off for their own protection. Um, and then we've got a really good graduated return to play protocol and everything like that going on. So I think we're a lot better at handling the, the, the head contacts. And then even from a mental health perspective, as charities now, like in, in rugby, you know, in rugby league, there's a state of mind charity that... I know people like Danny Sculthorpe, the, the former player, he's doing some remarkable working um, where there is a support network available for players now to speak about mental health. Um, and I think that's probably been long overdue. Um, probably still has a long way to go, probably because of funding and things like that. But there is unbelievable improvements over the last 20 years and particularly in the last few years. So I think we're getting there is what I'm saying. Yeah. It seems like the access part is really key because when you look at some of the ice hockeys or American football, imagine obviously rugby's got a drinking culture as well, where that's the thing that athletes and any individual might lean on more is just, you know, consuming things like that to sort of numb pain, numb discomfort. And we see, unfortunately, you know, rates increasing. And I know obviously the NHL with, with the painkillers, that combination can be pretty intense. So it's, yeah, you know, really yeah. great to see that that's coming along. Do you see that sort of arc? You, you touched on it there, but is that starting to shift yeah, a little bit? Yeah, I think there's a, an awareness now that the painkiller uh, side of things can be an issue. Um, you know, quite strong opiate, like tramadol, opiate-based painkillers were, were often prescribed and I, I believe that's a lot less now um you know it takes uh, i think that's a big improvement and again that's why i'm interested in things like cbd mm-hmm. as a research because some of the players who have tried it tell me that they feel better from a pain perspective with far fewer side effects so if we have got a product there where it can help with pain management um and it's got fewer side effects and less addictive then I think we've got a responsibility to explore this. And I think if CBD came from any other plant apart from the, <laughs> yeah. the cannabis one, we, you know, if we just discovered a new plant that had all these uh, potential, because we forget that, like, you know, a lot of pain medication comes from plants, doesn't it? Like aspirin yeah. comes from... White willow bark, you know, there you go. Salicylate, tree bark, and, yeah. you know, uh, tramadol from the poppy, you know, opiates and... So a lot of our medicine does come from that. Um, it's just that marijuana was known for something else before it was known for uh, what we're now looking at it. So, yeah, I think we've got, a, we'll get, again, I keep saying, I think we're getting better. I think we've got a long way to go. Um, I think players um, have been more sensible. But we also can't hide away from the fact that, as I've said a couple of times, you feel like you've been run over by a bus. And yeah. sometimes, you know, painkilling medication... It's required. It's an absolute requirement. You know, if you want to... You know, you'll, you'll hear some players, particularly at the back end of their careers, that will tell stories about actually having to get the partners to help them get dressed in the morning. Mm. I can't physically put the socks on. Um, 
So, yeah. you know, it, it's a sport where of a lot of contact sports that does have that, that effect. And, and when we did research on CBD, what I found quite fascinating was we, we looked at the age groups of people using it. And by far, the biggest demographic was the older players who were probably looking for some yeah. pain uh, relief because when you're young, uh, you're almost undestructible, aren't you? You can take them. Yeah, physical collisions, and you get towards that age of thirty. Starts to take a little longer. Yeah, yeah. And, and just to pivot a little bit on the biomarker side of things, in terms of concussion diagnosing concussions, I had Dr. Patrick O'Halloran on uh, last year talking about some of the on-field tests now that are potentially, you know, coming down the pipeline. You know, what do you see there in terms of when we talk about that early diagnosis or being able to really help an athlete out are there some of these biomarkers that are that are making some some progress here i hope so um you know it's great that you have conversations like that you know my reading is we're not quite there yet um that's the, that's the dream isn't it that you suspect a player's had a concussion and you've got a real good valid reliable pitch side biomarker whether it's blood saliva whatever and then you've got a definitive yes or no Mm-hmm. Um, at the moment, we were using these like memory recall tests, which I believe are very good. Um, but you know, there must be some false positives and false negatives within that. Uh, yeah. If we can get a really good biomarker, that has to be has to be the future, doesn't it? Yeah, it would be it would be tremendous uh, for sure. Uh, Fantastic. Well, if we go over from contact sports to individual sports, um, you know, just appreciating what an athlete does is, is a huge part of the, the picture here, isn't it? In terms of fueling and supporting and certain sports, we're still just scratching the surface. So when we talk about things like tennis, um, you know, you've, you've done some work there, obviously until recently, still on guesswork equations, trying to figure out how much work's actually being done. Can you talk a little bit about some of that work of trying to just assess for that total energy expenditure and really figuring out, you know, how much our elite professional tennis players actually putting out on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, we've done this in a lot of sports, but um, we've developed a little bit of a model at Liverpool John Moores University of of this PhD uh, practitioner role, whereby we put one of our talented students into an elite organisation to work as a sport nutritionist, so that's a practitioner side, but at the same time, be a researcher uh, and you know work towards the PhD, the doctorate, but also answer some fundamental questions. Uh, and one thing I always start off with is the basics, uh, and it's fascinating in how many sports we may be trying to an ice, ice a cake and we've not baked the actual cake yet <laughs> for want of a better yeah, analogy. For sure. So there's loads of sports where we're working where um, we don't even know the energy expenditure. So you mentioned tennis, but one I'll come back to first was golf. Yeah, I was going to say. That. That's uh, some work that I'm currently doing. It's a similar thing. And I read somewhere in one journal article suggesting north of 2,700 kilocals energy expenditure for a game of golf. Now, if you put that into some kind of context, ballpark figure, you use about 100 kilocals per mile running. Mm-hmm. So a marathon's about 2,600 calories to run a marathon. 
Does anyone really think that a game of golf is more energy expenditure demanding than running a marathon? You know, I, I I'm guess a speed golf is the only one that might be close, but uh, otherwise it's not yeah. even close. It's not even close. So, you know, it's just some like throwing out numbers, using, people throwing numbers out there with probably inappropriate technology. So we've tried to measure it better. And we're coming up with more like six or 700 calories, which is just more than what it would be to go for a four-hour walk, which for me makes much more sense. But it's, mm-hmm. the expenditure of golf is similar to walking rather than um, running a marathon. And I know you said individual sports, but I'll give another example. Well, well I was going to say there, Grant, that probably explains why John Daly's bag of M&Ms every three holes leads to a little bit of an excess at the end of a game, right? Correct. And, you know, yeah, it's, it's a great point. Why is that important? Well, if, if you're a recreational golfer using golf to help with your health and body composition, well, actually, you need to be aware that that's only five, six, seven hundred calories. So that rocking up in advance, having your bacon butter, three Mars bars, <laughs> kind of Coke and then a burger and chips at the end really isn't going to wash. And what if you're what if you're riding, Graham? And in North America, drinking three or four pints. I mean, correct. Energy yeah, expenditure is going to be a couple hundred calories. I, right? know. I want to get them on the similar techniques that we use in a in a, in a golf cart, mm-hmm. and then see how low that would be. Wow. Um, so yeah, so that's why we're interested in this. And I'll, I'll jump to soccer for a second. Mm-hmm. We wanted to do that same study uh, in youth football players, so like the thirteen-year-olds. This was part of Marcus Hannon's PhD, another PhD practitioner. Yeah, we had Marcus and we measured that the energy expenditure of the youth soccer players was higher than the first team in some situations. Mm-hmm. So we've got 13-year-olds in some situations needing 4,500 calories. And then you think about that also needs to include a school day and everything that goes with it. And it's really hard to achieve 4,500 calories of healthy food in a 13-year-old who's at school for seven hours. Mm-hmm. But a really key observation, so what we've done, we did then at Everton Football Club, was came up with a concept of what we called a pit stop and a grab and grow. And the idea of a pit stop was as soon as these kids got to training, we give them this huge high-energy shake, so nut butters, yogurt, maybe put some avocado in, honey, mm. fruits, to try and help with a, a pit stop. Yeah. And then before we let them go, we give them a grab and grow, not grab and go, a, gr- a grab and grow. Uh, and then this would be another high energy snack to try and make sure that we were matching the energy expenditure to give these kids a best chance of, uh, of performing and growth and maturation. And in a similar study, we're doing this now with tennis. So I always try and get back to the fundamental question, which is, are we balancing expenditure are we getting enough of the right type of macronutrients in and generally i find that if we get that side of the equation right the part that people worry too much about the little fine details and and be on the right supplements and uh, do you know what it really is icing the cake and let's bake it first and get the calories right and the macronutrient balance right and if we get that right we're nine tenths of the way there yeah 100 totally agree and Graham, how do you balance out, you know, with parents, obviously two-thirds of the population overweight and obese, they're hearing all those messages. And so they struggle with context 
And so when we say, hey, you're a young athlete, basketball is the same. We need to get 4,000 calories and here's some of the foods. And that, you know, there's often a struggle for the parent side because it's so much more food than they eat or, or whatnot and to get to those levels. How do you, you know, from an education standpoint, from your side, do you, do you face some struggles with parents on that side of saying, well, we need to feed this much because look, we've just shown you this, your, your kid needs 4,000 calories. Um, yeah, you know, but there might be some apprehension there. You can do in certain situations. And, and I'm going to go back to my a team that I used to work for again as an, ex, an example, I think, of excellent practice, which is Everton Football Club. Um, now, Everton were brilliant at liaising with the parents. The, the, the parents even had there was a section of a website that they, they employed somebody Amazing. within the club to be the parent liaison officer and everything like that. Um, and we would try and educate the parents as well as educating the players. Uh, and, you know, Everton were really good at liaising with and understanding the importance of that relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, so it can be done. It just takes a little bit of effort from, from the organisation and a realisation of, of how important that is. But I think Everton, in many ways, we're ahead of the curve, you know, by For sure. funding the PhD to look at the energy expenditure of the kids and spending time trying to educate the parents and allowing the nutritionists to give presentations to the parents. So whilst the, the kids were training, do some work, workshops with the parents, etc., and, and offer one-on-one consultations over Zoom with the parents as well as with the players. Um, so, so yeah, I think it's a really key relationship and one that if you put enough time and effort in, will, will really pay dividends. Yeah, it is tremendous how just like you said, putting all the allocating those resources, you know, parents can feel that they feel like there's a, a level of um, commitment from the club to want to be able to support their kids. And so it's amazing how that from a compliance standpoint, from an education standpoint, you know, you just get the, the ball rolling in the right direction um, is, is fantastic. And whereas some other sports or if, if athletes aren't to that level, it can be sometimes a challenge when parents are just getting a leaflet from somebody or reading up on their own. And, you know, there could be some, some struggles there. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, we've seen a big push over the last few years of infographics, which I basically call wallpaper <laughs> because I think they look great, but I'm never convinced that that's a way you educate somebody, but you put a poster up saying, this is what you do. So where the parents can be sat around, we can put these infographics up. Does it really result in a behaviour change? Does it really result in education? And and I don't think anything beats sitting down in front of somebody and speaking yeah. and answering questions and engaging. So if I was to put one bit of advice to people, whether it's for players, for parents, wider support staff, is face-to-face conversations for me is how we educate. It's not by throwing up a few posters and thinking our work is done. Yeah, it's amazing how face to face is the human contact is is still still key, which is good to good to see. Now, as we get to the back end here, a few questions for you. Um, as we shift gears a little bit, you know, learning through failure is obviously a big part of the learning process. And so, for yourself, you know, thinking back on your career, what are some of the bigger lessons learned through some of the challenges that you face? You know, what comes to mind when you think about that? Yeah, <laughs> I, I think about James Morton because I, I told James this story. And now he uses it all the time in uh, in one of his presentation skills lectures about my failure. I think he calls it grave near miss. 
<laughs> um, it was one of my early consultancies over in Munster Rugby in Ireland. And um, my opening address to the players, I'd put together a presentation. And it was basically a, a third-year sports science lecture. Uh, when I look back on it, the slides were horrendous. I was talking about amino acid oxidation. It, it was horrendous. And I can't remember if the projector broke or my 15-minute slot got put down to a couple of minutes. But whatever it was, I wasn't allowed to give that presentation. And in the end, I just had to stand in front of them, introduce myself, and uh, explain what my role there was. If I'd given that, it probably would have been the start and end of my sport <laughs> nutrition career. It was horrendous. And now if I get the chance to give presentations, the five minutes of one or two slides, virtually no science, and really just trying to simplify the advice down. So I think that's probably the biggest lesson that I learned quite early on is that whilst as an academic or whilst as a practitioner, it's essential that I know the science. Otherwise, I'm a blagger. What the player needs to know is a real simple practical messages. And they need to know a why, but in a very simple way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was my lack of confidence where I think I wanted to tell them all the science, look how much I know. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think that's probably the biggest failure um, there. Um, uh, and I'd say a second one is, you know, the importance of um, note-taking and planning and, and that side of things that's boring. And, and I think if you don't get that side right, the the reflection, the note-taking, all that administrative side of the job, it can come back and bite you pretty quickly. So I, I think keeping it simple and being reflective, having good notes and being organised, I think are two key lessons. When you talk about being reflective as just certain to the points that were trying to be made that month or that quarter or or what aspects do you suggest? Yeah, that? Well, we, 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 there's a lot of nonsense. You know, we're here, things like uh, practice makes perfect, don't we? And we know that's not right. Practice makes permanent. Yeah. And if you keep practicing Hopefully the same it's good thing. good permanent. Yeah, exactly. And if you keep practicing the same thing, you would keep making the same mistakes. Bad the, golf the swing. Einstein, definition of insanity doing the same thing expecting a different result and Mm -hmm. I've heard my colleague James who I've mentioned a few times you know talking about you don't learn from experience you learn from reflecting on experience and you know the more I've worked in this industry the more I realize that you know work does operate or sports science does operate very much within an echo chamber and until you challenge yourself and look for people to challenge you and reflect not only on yourself, but reflect with other people. Um, then actually what you can just then do is a lot of repetition. Mm. Uh, I'm very fortunate with England rugby. I work with a team, you know, like it's coming from the boss, but just won't let you um, sit still and won't let you um, not try and advance and get better and reflect. Uh, and that is driven through the entire culture with England rugby. So um, I think that self-reflection and reflection with with peers and being open, you know, that open mindset to say, is there a better way? You know, and can we do things better? And and accepting 
that rather than taking it as someone having a go, go at you. You know, yeah. actually, there is always a better way. As much as you think you've got the perfect way of doing something, there has to be a better way. You know, things develop. So I think that open mindset is, and, and that's maybe one of my blind spots. I have two big blind spots. I know it. I work a lot with good sports psychologists like Martin Littlewood who does the personality profiles on you and, you know, that, that mindset of where I know I've got a great way of operating. I mm. can get a little bit, know that's how you do it. Mm-hmm. And my second blind spot being an academic is waiting for the research where sometimes in the elite world we need to be a little bit ahead of it because by the time the research is done, <laughs> everybody's over. doing it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And I know that's a huge challenge. I will always have been a, on one breath. I don't want to be called out for doing unproven practices as an academic. Yeah. But on the other hand, when you work in elite sport, if you've yeah. got a bunch, you sometimes have to go with it. Mm. That's yeah, it's fascinating. And Grab, when we talk about you know the evolution of performance nutrition research, which you just touched on, you know, where do you see things going in the next five or 10 years? Yeah, it's, you know, it's a, it's a really good one. Um, I think the personalization is where we're moving and I think we need to get a lot better at it. We all need to look at some classic studies in strength and conditioning where people have been given the exact same diet and the exact same training protocol. And across a spectrum, some people lose muscle mass and some gain 10 kilos. Mm. you know, with everything else controlled. Now, that yeah. can only be our genetic predisposition for that. You know, and, and I've seen it myself where people only need to look at a weight in the gym and they'll put size <laughs> on and other people can lift all day, every look day. Look at that weight for a long time. <laughs> and nothing shifts, exactly, yes. So I, I don't think we're there yet on the genetic profiling, but I think that's coming. I know there are companies out there offering and this is where maybe it's my blind spot where my my research says we aren't there yet. Mm. But my head tells me we will get there and we will get much better once measuring the entire genome rather than a few snips becomes cost effective. I think we will doing we will start doing whole genome analysis on people mm-hmm. and then understand what works for that individual. And that's not just nutrition, but that'll be training-wise, recovery. And everything, and then you've got to have a challenge for your conditioning staff, aren't you? If you know that a certain player will respond completely different, but within a teams or team world, we've yeah. got the team side of it. Individuals more staff. <laughs> yeah, that'll be a challenge. But I think that's where we're going. The, the very much the, the individualized side. Side. We're going to be doing a lot more blood testing, a lot more uh, analysis. And we're going to get a lot more prescriptive to the individual rather than what we've read works as a whole using means and standard deviations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it really is fascinating with the technology advancing and what we can collect in, in real time. I'm, I'm curious your thoughts of, you know, from the athlete's perspective of sort of we can track their sleep and the, now glucose and metabolomics and all these various things. You know, at what point do we start to, you know, in, in a real world setting, make the athletes sort of like the, 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 the guinea pig and it's almost an overload or you see now with North American sport, obviously the, who has ownership of some of this information because yeah. athletes yeah. are worried about then, you know, the, the organization says, well, you see X, Y, and Z, well, this is why we're only going to pay you, 
you know, so just obviously it's a huge, huge area here. We're just curious yeah, your thoughts there. Yeah, there's huge moral and ethical implications here because when I said if you do a genome and say eventually we can look out that someone's got a particular genotype that would make them more susceptible to injury, would an athlete want the club to know that when that could affect contract negotiations? Mm. So you're exactly right. There will, there will be lots of moral and ethical and sides of this that need uh, fully teasing out. And at the moment, what I always say is that anything that we test on a player has to have a benefit to that individual. Mm-hmm. So if we're going to take a blood test out of an athlete. I think we need to, prior to putting that needle into the player, make sure that we've got a protocol for every single marker that we take. So if if we're taking vitamin D, for example, they need to know, and I've got these protocol sheets for the organisations I work with. If your vitamin D is 30 nanomoles per litre, what do we do? It's 50, what do we do? It's 125, what do we do? They need to be very aware of that and know that everything is in their best interest. Um, And I think as long as we keep the interest of the athlete at heart, then we're on solid ground. I think if we start going down what I said, you know, let's genotype to see if it's susceptible to injury. And if so, that might mean we'll offer one-year contracts instead of four, and people who aren't susceptible are getting four-year contracts. Well, then uh, I'm getting a bit less comfortable. It seems like an area where you could see the athletes who make considerable sums obviously expanding their own performance staff to be able to have ownership on this information, to be able to gain that information, like you're saying, but then obviously their own squad, their own person would have sort of availability and ownership and wouldn't necessarily have to, you know. And I'm seeing that a little bit, not so much in sports like rugby, but when I work in sports like football, Mm. where not saying money is no object, but money is less of an object than it is in, in other sports. You are seeing a growing number of players who do have their own physio, their own conditioning staff, their own sports scientists, their own chef, their own nutritionist. to actually putting their own team together. And I have no doubt that they will be collecting data, but now only they will see it and the private support staff team will see it. And maybe that's a way that sport is going to go on this monitoring side of things. Maybe it will be their own teams doing it rather than the clubs doing it. But it'll be a fascinating area to watch and see how this develops. Yeah, it's interesting. I see that a lot with the NBA players that I work in, similar trends. So that's that is very, very interesting. Graham, appreciate you, you know, carving out some time for us. And the last one for you in terms of you and you touched on some great advice already, but you know, for a practitioner working with athletes or looking to pursue a career in performance nutrition, you know, what's a piece or two of advice that you might give? Yeah, I mean, the first thing is is to get qualified. I know it sounds really obvious, but, you know, invest in yourself, invest in your qualifications to make sure that, because it's certainly the UK now to work in nutrition, you need to be at master's level um, to get on the sport nutrition register. So, so invest in yourself. Um, work on your people skills, which I think is huge. You know, just don't be scared of cracking up random conversations with people. Go and help people. Um, offer offer support to people. Go and volunteer. So whilst you're at university, really work on your people skills. Because when I see people at master's level come to me on almost week one, I can predict which ones are going to have a successful career. I'm wrong occasionally. 
but it's generally them who you can just warm to straight away and they've worked on the people skills and they're not scared of just going having random conversations, you know. Often them icebreakers when you're working in elite sport, you need yeah. that confidence to just go and speak to people. So I think work on them people skills, get qualified, and you know, like I said, offer your time for free early on while you're training. You know, try and help. Um, if you know if you've got a friend who's running a marathon, well, you know, why not try and help them and mm. get some experience and see what you can do. Um and then it's about staying on top of the literature. Don't think that once you're qualified, you know it. You know, mm-hmm. and, and it's never been easier, has it? So even like yeah, like this, you know, podcasts, we've never been uh, able to access better amounts of information. But on top of that, I think that's also made people lazy. And um, yeah, you can't get your information off a, a tweet. You know, don't follow somebody on Twitter and think you've got your information, you still do need to get back to the, the journal articles. And I would also say, be careful who you are following on Twitter. And just because people have got a lot of followers, yeah. doesn't mean that the information <laughs> that they're putting out, and often those with the most followers tend to have the least credible information yeah, because it's got ironically. them known. So do your homework, I would say, is the final tip there. Tremendous. Well, Graham, really appreciate you covering out the time. I'm sure most people know how to get in touch with you, but uh, where is the best place to stay connected with yourself and, and all your tremendous work at Liverpool John Moores? Well, uh, I probably spent 15 minutes of the last hour bagging social media, but you can get me on social media. <laughs> nice. um, Twitter. There I'm, are some benefits. Yeah. Twitter, I am close underscore nutrition. Instagram, I'm close nutrition. Um, if you Google Graham Close, Liverpool John Moores, all my contact de- details will come up from the university, yeah. including my email and that. And I'm I'm always happy to uh, to take questions if people want to reach out to me and if I can help in any way, I always do try and help if I can. Fantastic. We'll definitely include those in the show notes. And uh, Graham, appreciate the time. Anytime. Great conversation. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Performance Nutrition Podcast. To watch the full video interview and short clips from this episode, check out our YouTube channel, Performance Nutrition Podcast. Finally, if you enjoyed the podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe. All that good stuff. It's a massive help to the show. Until next time, take care. The Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast endeavors to provide accurate and helpful information to listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Dr. Bub's performance podcasts.